Tere, and welcome to History of Estonia podcast. I'm your host, William Parsley, recording from my home office in Anderson Township, Cincinnati, Ohio, USA. I hope you enjoyed the last interview with Andres Kasekamp, in which we discussed his book, The Radical Right and in Interwar Estonia. Today we start a deep dive into Estonia and the Stalinist era. This will be a multi-part episode, so without further delay, let's begin. Tede, and welcome to History of Estonia podcast. In this episode, we are lucky to have with us Olaf Mertelsmann, who is Professor of Eastern European History at the Institute of History and Archaeology, University of Tartu. He holds a doctorate in history from the University of Hamburg in the year 2000. He has taught in Estonia, Germany, and Russia. His main interests are the social and economic history of Eastern Europe, Stalinism, Soviet history, and contemporary Baltic history. He is the author of five monographs, has edited several volumes, and published more than 15 papers in journals. Tede Professor Mertelsmann, and welcome to History of Estonia podcast. Tere, um, I'm, uh, I thank, thank you for the invitation to speak here, and uh, I'm glad to answer your questions. Well, thanks for being here, and uh, let's start off. In our last episode, we met with Professor Andres Kasekamp of Toronto University. We discussed Estonia in the interwar period after the founding of the Estonian state and its recognition by the Soviet Union on February 2nd, 1920. Estonia was later recognized by most European countries and the United States by 1922. Then, in 1939, Estonia was forced into signing the Treaty of Bases with the Soviet Union by massing troops on the Estonian border at roughly a ratio of 20 to 1. The treaty allowed 25,000 troops to be stationed on Estonian soil. Then, on June 17, 1940, Estonia was occupied by the Red Army, and four days later, the Soviet appointed a new government in Estonia. The new government lasted a little over a year before the Germans took over Tallinn on August 28, 1941. What was life like in Soviet Estonia in this first year of occupation, Professor Mertelsmann? Yeah, well, I I should start with a little larger story. Estonia was part of Eastern territories being annexed by the Soviet Union in 1939 and 1940, inhabited by more than 23 million people, thus just half of the English or half in uh, in the fulfillment of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, others call it uh, the Hitler-Stalin Pact. All started in eastern Poland, 
which became part of Soviet Ukraine and Soviet Belarus. And in Eastern Poland, the Soviet Union worked out the model and the different stages of how to Sovietize an ex-territory. Um, and you will see this model uh, all over the other annexed territories. They would even copy the dates of, of uh, certain reforms they make, like a currency reform and so on. This is, this is all based on Eastern Poland. Um, what could the Soviet Union gain from those territories? You have to bear in mind that the Soviet Union and Albania were the poorest countries in Europe at that time. Right. The poorest and the less developed. And by the way, if you would have the choice, Albania would be the better country to live in because the Soviet Union produced uh, several man-made famines in the interwar period, killing millions. Uh, those occupied territories were simply more developed. They would increase the economic power of the Soviet Union and would increase the manpower of the Soviet Union. And it would be a regaining of uh, territory from the from, from the former Russian Empire. So the idea is quite similar to what happens in Ukraine right now. Um, but what did it mean for uh, the populations involved? You have a lot of... Uh, theatrical events, demonstrations, and uh, uh, new governments being installed. But all this followed, followed a plan by the Soviet plenipotentiary for this certain region. In the case of Estonia, it was Andrei Stanov. I went through the Stanov files and uh, what might have looked from an Italian, from a Italian perspective as a change in government and reforms taken by the new government was in fact orchestrated by Stanov on the spot. Uh, Estonia would uh be incorporated officially six weeks after the invasion but uh, as a matter of fact um the the politburo of the all union communist party in moscow already made decisions uh for estonia and the other uh occupied baltic states before the date of admission to the Soviet Union. So it's 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 a stage play and it's following it's following 
a timetable originally set in Eastern Poland. But what does it mean for the local population? Um, political arrests are happening from day one onwards, but they are happening more or less in silence. They are not widely um, seen or, uh, or noted. But what the people would see very soon uh, are economic reforms which would drive them often directly against the wall. What do I mean? Price fixing, nationalization of private property, the introduction of economic planning, the introduction of delivery norms and things like that. But let's start with single issues. In a democracy, you can see a nationalization of private property, for instance, to, to build a new railroad or to, to uh, construct other, other uh, infrastructure, but the owners are compensated for. Um, in the Soviet system, nationalization means we take it away from you, full stop. Right. And nationalization meant the majority of private enterprises. All land is nationalized. This means if you own a private house, this is now on state land. If you are a farmer, you are farming on state land. It's not your land anymore. In the towns, larger houses are nationalized. But if you imagine Eastern European towns at that time, they are wooden towns, but they have very, very few single family housing. So most of the people live in larger houses, larger wooden houses, 200, 300 square meters, where one flat is occupied by the owner of the house and the others are tenants. And now uh, the new regime says, this is our house. It's no longer yours. Or when the house is smaller, well, it's still your house but we are fixing the rents and the rents are, are lower than uh, your need for regular repairs, which means the only sensible thing is you let your house decay because the rents are not paying the cost of uh, repairs. And when we speak about wooden houses, uh, 
you need more regular repairs than for houses built built of bricks, for instance. Um, as a tenant, you might be happy in the beginning because because you do not you do not have to pay a high rent. The rent is so low, but unfortunately, the roof is leaking. And nobody cares for this. Not the right. state, if if the state is the owner, nor the real owner, because the rent is too low. Um, nationalization of private property means, of course, you lose your enterprise, your business, but it also distracts um the functioning of certain sectors so the soviets came in june in june and july august is the time to buy uh, firewood and the entire country is running on firewood because with very few exceptions there is no other way of heating so in the countryside you usually would own a piece a piece of land which is already now state owned but it you lease it in a in a sense and there is a bit of forest or there are some trees so you produce your own firewood but if you are simply a laborer in the countryside or a clerk at the at the local municipality's office, you need firewood. And all, all the inhabitants of um, the towns need firewood. Right. And the firewood market is breaking down because of nationalizations and price fixing. This is not nice. No. Because in case you are not well off, you can't buy enough firewood for the winter. You will have to survive with 12 degrees Celsius or 14. And your heating system, cockle stoves or tiled stoves, uh, can't take in anything else but firewood. You can't use coal or or uh, any other thing because this would ruin the stove. Um, and and this very small example of firewood is is uh, actually an example for a chapter in an economics textbook on what happens when you introduce uh, socialism. Your market breaks down and the next winter was extremely cold. And this cold uh, was partially, partially um, responsible for, for the widespreadness on, of infectious diseases 
So imagine you have the flu and your flat has 12 degrees. Not very friendly to heal, no. Yeah. Um, so economic structures break down. Every big transition, whether from socialism to capitalism or or from capitalism to socialism leads to a reduction of economic output. There is no other way. Um, this can be studied all over the place. So your economy is shrinking. Prices are fixed. But when the price is fixed too low, you have to go to the black market and have to pay much higher prices. Your currency is packed to the ruble. Originally, the purchasing power of an Estonian, of an Esti Kron, Estonian Kron, was about 10 to 15 rubles. They fix it at an exchange rate of one crown for one ruble 25. Wow. Uh, which means that, that uh, your savings are going up the chimney. Prices will increase about 10 times during a year which is a thousand percent inflation. And the Soviet regulations even prevent you from taking out your, saving, uh, your savings from your account in the bank. There are limits. You, you can't take it out. Uh, uh, you can't take it out in, in, uh, on one day. There are limits for each month and everything on your account, which is more than a given sum, is automatically confiscated. So Estonian bank accounts in the first Soviet year lose nominally 98% of their value. And if you think about this exchange fraud, uh, in reality, Estonian bank accounts represented approximately 0.2% of the pre-Soviet value. Wow. Yep. This is another kind of nationalization. But if you fix the crown to the ruble at a much too low price and begin with price fixing, um things which are exported from Estonia to other parts of the Soviet Union receive a far too low price and things which are imported from other parts of the Soviet Union are heavily overpriced. This is a technique, by the way, which was used by German occupation forces during World War II uh, 
in in every place they occupied. But the same technique was used by the Soviet Union in their newly acquired territories. And this was the main way to exploit those territories economically. Yeah, this is this is comparative this is like um uh Western European colonialism in Africa, we give you glass pearls and you give us the goodies. And and of course we dictate what the price for the goodies is. That makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> so as a as a result of a lot of economic reforms. Um, yes, nominal wages did increase, but they did not in increase at the speed of inflation. So people lost between 60 or 70% of their real wages in just one year. Their wow. savings and their property. But Estonia was an agricultural country. Right after the harvest, the Soviets announced an agricultural land reform. And now you might think that somebody benefited from it. So they cut land uh, off from larger farms and distributed it among very small farms and established 20,000 new farmsteads. This sounds a little bit socialist. Unfortunately, unfortunately, those who received land did not receive credit. So what, what are you doing when you have owned five hectares and you get seven hectares extra, but, but all your savings are gone and you have no credit whatsoever to, to uh, build, let's say, a new barn or a new stable or to, to buy additional tools which are needed for this new land. And what are you doing as a so-called landless peasant and receiving 10 hectares and have no money to establish anything on this? You not even have the money for seeds. Um, so this land reform was meant at winning the hearts of the poorer strata of rural society but in fact nobody did win anything initially oh yes a title on land but but you will have enormous tensions inside village society because he has taken my land i had to give this family and so on land or even some tools for free, um, those tensions would break out uh, soon after uh, 
the Germans would drive the Soviets out. Okay. As a poor peasant, now you have a land title. But what happens? In the winter, I already mentioned firewood. In the winter, the regime sends the peasants by force. It's a kind of forced labor, corvée, into the forest to cut firewood. Because the firewood supply of the towns is insufficient. Uh, by the way, from the moment you cut firewood until the moment you can use it, uh, you need at least half a year. This is clear. Yeah. But uh, a more drastic attack on the rural population are the delivery norms of uh, of uh, <clears throat> March, April 1941. So after the land reform, there was no harvest. But the delivery norms are given according to the hectares somebody holds. So you are a poor peasant, you gained more hectares, but now you have to fill, fulfill those delivery norms. With what? There has been no harvest in the meanwhile. Yeah. Uh, the delivery the delivery norms are unkind. You also might might uh, change some items: more meat, less grain, and so on, uh, or pay in rubles. But your situation is absolutely desperate. As somebody who gained land and has to fulfill those full delivery norms uh, the delivery norms itself were another chapter in the book of exploitation because the prices um, the peasants received for the forced deliveries were between one and maybe five percent of the market value of the deliveries so this is an enormous agricultural tax. Uh, one reason why the entire Estonian peasantry was not happy with uh, uh, the Soviet reforms. But the victims of Soviet reforms were actually those who should be the favorites of Soviet reforms, farmhands, um, unqualified laborers, working women, the weak, the poor. But they were, they were hit the worst by inflation. And they were also hit by other things. Um, Estonia had several several tens of thousands of farmhands. As a farmhand, 
you agree in spring on your salary for the period you work on a farm. During your labor, you are fed. Maybe you get some pocket money and you have a place to sleep and so on. And with this salary, you hope to get through the winter. But in the moment, the farmhands received their salaries. Uh, it was it was uh, already victim to inflation, and they could barely survive the winter on those very small amounts of money they got. Yeah, another right. another example. Uh, Male and female empl employment, the, f the male and female employment ratio um, was nearly similar. Approximately 70% of the uh, population in employment age, which is really high. But due to the shrinking economy, uh, who was fired first? Of course, women. We have some local data on on unemployment, and it's mostly women. Yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, and now, now think about widows. Think about unmarried women with children, and so on. Again, they were driven against the wall. Retired people drawing pensions being inflated, and so on. So <clears throat> uh, in Estonia, there is the rare case that an economic crisis, and the first year of Soviet rule was an economic crisis, uh, could be directly seen in, in the vital statistics. So during the great slump, the great economic crisis, from the late 1920s onwards, uh, developed economies saw an increase in mortality by one, two, three percent, maybe. That's all. Yeah. Um, in the first Soviet year, Estonia faced an increase of natural mortality by about 50 percent. So oh. this is this is uh, ten to twenty times the impact of the Corona crisis we had recently. Just as a comparison, um, and we have the data. It's basically increased infant infant and children's mortality, and it's the elderly. Right. Infectious diseases as a, a caused by malnutrition, in addition, poor heating in a cold winter. So the tip was around January, February, when uh, the temperature was the lowest. And, and this is this is a kind of of uh, economic breakdown and breakdown of of uh, real incomes 
which has not been faced by any Western society in the 20th century. Yeah. Even the breakdown in Germany after World War II was much smaller than this. And it was not only Estonia, the same pattern in all over the Soviet occupied territory. Um, I took some time to, to study uh, reports on the sentiment of the population. And well, these are, or these were reports written locally by communists who reported uh, what the pop, what the normal people were talking about in their counties, what were their complaints, etc. Uh, where very rarely the loss of independence is, is mentioned. Really rarely. Wow. Opposite to historiography, but economic problems. Winter is coming. The kids in our in our county have no no shoes or boots to go to school. We have to close the schools. It's snowing. They can't go bar feet anymore. This kind of stuff. And if you force me to go into the forest to chop wood, I knock you out. Was the comment of a peasant to a communist agitator. Yeah. Um, so it's it's the economic destitution which for a long time influences the really bad mood of the of the population and the hatred and fueled the hatred of the Soviet system. Yeah, I could understand it's, that. It's only it's only by June 1941 when the Soviets deported 1% of the population, about 10,000 people, and they deported them openly that uh, the, ang the anger has also other reference points. And the, let's say, the first year of Soviet rule is crowned by Lavrenti Beria's decision to murder all uh, all uh, persons who have been arrested for political reasons and who could not be who could not be evacuated in the moment the Germans arrived after operation after Operation Barbarossa. So then the Germans and uh, anti-Soviet partisans would find mass executions, sites of mass executions in different prisons and, and other places of imprisonment. Yeah. Uh, and 
so but state violence is and persecution is not in the center for most of the time for most of the time it's simply economic exploitation the enormous decline in the standard of living food problems no more milk no more meat things like that um and in the background you have the soviet propaganda trumpeted all over the media about the happy life in the soviet union and how great it all will be and of course nobody could could believe this kind of stuff yeah uh the there were only very few persons who could benefit from the first Soviet year. And these were intellectuals, writers who collaborated with the new regime, who participated in propaganda, who, who entered the party, who made a career in, in the Soviet apparatus and received all kinds of bonuses and uh, and uh, privileges. But all the other 99% um, became victim to a textbook in economics experiment, how to introduce socialism. You, you should know that even at the beginning of uh, this, the German occupation during World War II, the natural mortality was lower than during the first Soviet year. And, and who would think that, that right. Nazi occupation is better than, than being ruled by the Soviets? I think this is the the general uh, assessment of living in Soviet Estonia during the first Soviet year. Thank you for that. The war raged all over the European continent from 1941 to 1945. Estonian men were on both sides of the war in both German and Soviet armies. Many other Estonians worked for the German administration in various jobs over the three and a half years of occupation. When the army of the Soviet Union came back, they were said to have acted as if they were on enemy territory. Professor Mertelsmann, would you please describe what Estonians had to fear with the return of the Soviet army? Uh, first of all, uh, they had to fear that the politics of the first Soviet year would continue. Um, actually, the Soviets behaved a little bit different after the war. While the first Soviet year was a year of um, re 
constructing and restructuring an existent state the second time the Soviets came with already existing institutions which they had built up in the Soviet hinterland. Um, so they would implement much more Soviet structures right from the beginning. But this is not to say that uh, the post the post-war period was uh, in any way better than than the first Soviet year. Um, <clears throat> the second the second thing people had to fear was uh, how the Soviets would assess their relations to the Germans. So who is collaborator or according to the Soviet Union collaborator, um, what kind of punishment is necessary, etc. And in the first 15 months after the advent of the Red Army, uh, the largest political cleansing in Estonian history ever happened with about 15,000 political arrests. And to this, you had to add those Estonians who got into, uh, who fought on the German side and who got into Soviet captivity. To this, you have to add those Estonians who ended up in filtration camps. Filtration camps, we still have in the uh, in Russia's war against Ukraine. So a huge political cleansing, partly deadly, partly not. Third, how would how would the Soviet soldiers behave? In, from 1939 to 1941, they more or less behaved quite okay. Let's say it like this. But the Soviet army coming in now was kind of different with a low level of discipline and with a high level of... Uh, violence against any civilian population, violence, theft, robbery, and of course, uh, mass raping. So each territory, the glorious Red Army liberated, fell victim to a crime wave and to mass raping. Um, It was just a matter of uh, of uh, language and of uh, and of the assessment the uh, Soviet soldiers had of this ter territory, how extensive this was. 
So also liberating parts of Russia, of course, the Red Army is raping and stealing and murdering. Um, out of their own in initiative, they might execute village elders as collaborators, or they might execute women who... Uh, uh, who had a child with a German soldier, something like this, uh, but on territory which was deemed somehow foreign, more developed, or where the language is not understandable, um, the degree of this violence was much uh, larger. So, uh, young Estonians didn't speak Russian at that time, right? And and young Hungarians or young German women also didn't speak Russian. But let's say uh, a Polish speaker and a Russian speaker can still somehow communicate. But also the idea that. Uh, Estonia was so rich after four years of war, um, three years of war, actually. Um, what you what you found in find in the documents that that for for Soviet soldiers, um, it was still capitalist, bourgeois, bourgeois. <clears throat> this also led to to uh, a lot of violence. According to the Soviet Estonian uh, People's Commissariat of the Interior uh, in 44-45, the majority of registered crimes was conducted by Red Army servicemen. And this is a Soviet source from a Soviet ministry. And wow. this does not take into account that the vast majority of rape victims will never speak about it and will never go to the Soviet police. Yeah. Makes so, sense. <clears throat> um, another thing, Estonians could wait, could, could await from the Soviets was a second land reform because the first land reform, well, the Germans remodeled this. So a lot of people got land back. And now when the Soviets come, they will already take it. And they will, uh, they will also use again their delivery norms. Uh, the Germans also did use delivery norms, but the Germans paid a bit better, one has to say. So the delivery, the Soviet delivery norms will come back. Um, as an addition, the Soviets would increase agricultural taxes quite quite aggressively for some 
for some farms, those agricultural taxes uh, would even uh, triple. And uh, this would mean they they had to pay taxes on the amount of two, two average wages in industry, two annual average wages in industry, just as taxes. So... <clears throat> Um, some Estonians hoped that uh, the Soviet regime might have changed to the better, but uh, this, of course, did not happen. The 1940s were a very miserable, very oppressive, and and uh, very dire uh, decade. So, <clears throat> so the Soviet army did not bring any good, and and you can see it in the patterns of mobilization. Um, the Germans could mobilize much more people into their forces, and some of them were even volunteers. Than the, than the Estonians. So in World War II, twice as much Estonians fought on the German side than on the Soviet side. This indicates where the sympathies lay. And it, this was not a sympathy for National Socialism. It was just a sympathy for the lesser evil. So most Estonians viewed the Germans as a lesser evil, although they have uh executed about 8000 estonian citizens which is a smaller number than the amount of soviet victims of about 40000 that's um the point and and of course in 1944 the war was still going on and uh and uh, young people would be mobilized into the Soviet army, some of them being already veterans from the German army. But there, with hindsight, uh, there is a good argument for not being mobilized into the Soviet army it's simply that fighting on the Soviet side was three times more dangerous than on the German side. The, the Soviet casualties were, on the average, three times higher than German casualties because of uh, a better um, because of uh, problems with leadership, doctrine, and all the other things. There was a call for Soviet mobilization of young men in 1944, which wasn't very successful. Many fled to the forest. I assume this had to have a major impact on the number of people living in the Estonian forests. Okay. <clears throat> uh, the, the largest number of those who hit in the forest 
were actually draft dodgers. This is true. Um, but uh, you shouldn't expect life in the forest to be very easy. So I think at one time, no more than 10,000 people are able to hide in the forests for any given time because you need a support network. You need some hideouts. Well, maybe, maybe uh, a former shelter from from a forestry enterprise whatsoever, but you, you need to live somewhere. Uh, you need firewood in the winter. You need food. So uh, you can't you can't feed so many people. So uh, sometimes in literature, yeah, they, they claim 30,000 Forest Brothers, etc., but those high figures come to get come when you add people who uh, consecutively over the years. If if you add all those people who went to the forest, uh, if you add them all together, so sometimes Soviet estimates are even lower but but more than 10,000 at the same time is is nearly impossible um and uh, <clears throat> it was more easier to hide with relatives or on lonely far farms somewhere in the middle of nowhere this uh, was also Affected. Um, part of those who went to the forest went into active resistance, but their numbers at any given time were even smaller. So you can't expect more than 2,000 2, armed resistance fighters at any given moment because of the drastic me measures by the Soviet state and and the anti-partisan warfare, which, which quickly started. So those scales are not great. And, and there is simply also a technical reason. Yeah, if, if I would decide to go to the forest and I take my backpack with 20 kilo uh, and find a shelter. I don't know how, how long I would be able to survive there. Me neither. So it's, uh, yeah. it's no opportunity for townspeople. It's, it's, it's more an opportunity for people who grew up on a farm and and uh, who who know how to survive survive in nature, right? 
it's uh, and uh, you know the forest and and swamps in Estonia are large. Every year, people get lost there. Simply uh, wanted to pick berries or mushrooms and are found a year later as a skeleton. So it's not that easy. Right. And I do not want to, and of course we have no numbers, but I do not want to know how many of those who hit in the forest actually died in the forest because of destitution and, and illnesses and whatsoever. Right. And frostbite. This is where we will place a bookmark in the first segment of our conversation with Professor Mertelsman. We plan to record the next segment in a week's time. A big thanks to Professor Mertelsman for sharing his vast knowledge of the Stalinist period. And thanks for listening. So until next time, Nagamisini. <laughs>